Friday. 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 You can't eat fish on a Friday. You can't eat fish on a Friday. Listen, I am happy that you're here. I'm happy that you're listening. I'm happy that you decided to tune in right now. Welcome to another episode of A Slice of Ham. Hi, how you doing? Still waiting on you to respond. All right, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. With the way that things in the news have been, I I would assume so. Today we have another episode of the Monday Night Book Club. As you know, we have been reading The Family Next Door. If you guys tuned in to the first episode, thank you very much for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, From the response that I got on some Q&As that I did on Instagram, it seems that the majority of people did enjoy me reading the book, even with as screwed up um, as the Turpins are, as horrific as the abuse um, is that's mentioned in the book. But I believe that I'll be able to get through chapters three and four, and that'll get us through part one of the book. If you don't remember from last week, we learned about David and Louise Turpin, the Turpin case. Uh, The Turpin case is a horrifically monumental case of child abuse and neglect. The Turpins had 13 children that they neglected and abused. Um, So, trigger warning, uh, I have not read this book, but I would assume that it contains themes of abuse and neglect and gaslighting, manipulation, emotional abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse. So, If that is too heavy for you, if some of the themes in this book end up being too heavy for you, I will not be mad at you for turning this off. In fact, I encourage you to, uh, because you have to take care of yourself. you got to look out for number one. So if it's too much for you, by all means, you don't have to continue. Um, But if this is something that interests you, then by all means, feel free to listen. I, again, have never read this book, so it's very, very interesting to also be reading it for the first time along with you guys. Um, I've always been interested in the Turpin case from a psychological standpoint. All the true crime cases that I cover, I'm so interested, I'm interested in the why and the how. Uh, And most true crime cases, you don't really get the why. There are some where you never get the why at all, so then you have to examine the how. How exactly did their lives go wrong? Did their brains go wrong to somehow lead them into abusing all these children? You know, any true crime case, it's how did they go wrong? What went wrong? What was the tipping point? What's the soup? What's the soup? A lot of true crime people talk, last podcast on the left, if you listen to last podcast on the left, I'm heavily uh, a big fan. Shout out to them. They talk a lot about serial killer soup. You know, you have a little bit of salt, a little bit of chicken broth, a little bit. It's all the ingredients necessary to create a serial killer or a cult leader or an abuser or whatever. So I love to figure out what what these people's particular soups are, what the criminal's soups are. What are their soups? What is the soup? Hey, what's the soup? That's going to be the question that I ask. So what's the soup? Okay. Without further ado... I have been talking for a good four minutes now. I feel like that's enough of an intro. Hi, how are you doing? Oh, well, I should give a minute to talk about how I've been, you know. Um, I've been great. I've been going to therapy every week. I'm starting to see a psychiatrist soon. Um, I watched two movies yesterday. 
and that was great. I love watching movies, and I haven't watched a movie on my own in quite some time. Um, so it was nice to do that. I watched Synchronic. If you've never seen Synchronic, that is such a good sci-fi movie. It's on Netflix right now. Oh, my, my. Um, Benson and Moorhead, the directors of those, are phenomenal. I hope they, I'm getting their names right off the top of my head. Um, they also did movies uh, called Resolution, Spring, The Endless, uh, and then this is their latest one, and they're all phenomenal. I love all of their movies, so check it out. I also watched The Master by uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, I believe. Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul W.S. Anderson, Wes Anderson, one of the Andersons. Um, oh, man, I was shocked at how much I love that movie. So two very good recommendations. Okay, and uh, shut up, Hammy. Get to the book. Start reading. Okay. All right. I'm going to do that, but you have to promise that you're not going to be so mean to me again. That was really rude and out of character for you. I'm kind of disappointed. I'm going to read it anyway, but don't 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 demand and shout at me ever again. <laughs> Chapter 3. The Honor Student. In 1974, 13-year-old David Turpin started at Glenwood Junior High School just a few miles from his home. Mike Gilbert was in David's class, and they would spend the next five years as friends. Our junior high was really small, said Mike, so of course you knew everybody. David was very intelligent, but kind of quiet and kept to himself. He was nerdy and always did well at school with good grades. Even as a young teenager, David stood out from the other boys. He was almost six feet tall, he towered over most of his classmates, and he always dressed very conservatively. He had really short hair and wore dress clothes most of the time in junior high, recalled Gilbert. He even wore a bow tie on occasions as a fashion statement. We're talking about the 1970s, when everybody else had long hair and bell-bottom pants. David wasn't like that. The two ninth graders soon bonded over chess, which David was obsessed with. He taught Gilbert how to play during gym class, when the teacher wasn't looking. Said Gilbert, He already knew how to play chess, and he beat me one time in three moves. But he taught me something, and nobody has ever beaten me in three moves since then. On November 27, 1979, the Reverend King Turpin Jr. died in Fremont, Ohio, at the hospital at the age of 74. He had been in the hospital for a few weeks due to his failing health. All his years down the mines had caught up to him. Tubes were running into Grandpa Turpin's body, wrote Randy who visited him a few days before he died. And remember, Randy is David's brother, including oxygen tubes in his nostrils. Grandpa was fighting for every breath. David later penned a tribute to his grandfather for his brother's biography. I mostly remember him as smiling, joking around, laughing, carrying on. Really just a lot of fun to be around, he wrote. We all really lost a lot when he died. In 1976, David followed Randy to Princeton High School, where he and Mike Gilbert began to grow apart. He had his own group of friends, said Gilbert. When we moved on to high school, he got a little wild and started wearing blue jeans. <laughs> he got a little wild and started wearing blue jeans. Oh my god. <laughs> Holy shit. David. Oh, the bowl cut bastards wearing blue jeans. The Princeton High School yearbooks contain many photos of David's achievements in various clubs over the years. 
A group picture from a Bible club picnic in the fall of 1976 shows 15-year-old David with a new Prince Valiant fringe, staring at the camera with a wry smile. By the following year, David was the club's treasurer and sits in front of the other members in the yearbook photo. Underneath its mission statement, The purpose of the Bible Club is to encourage Christian fellowship during and after school. Along with fellowship comes the frolicking fun that the Bible Club members enjoy in each other's company. Bible Club activities included bell ringing for the Salvation Army, hosting a Thanksgiving dinner for an underprivileged family, and organizing a Christmas party. Bluefield Daily Telegraph reporter Greg Jordan who has covered the Princeton area for more than 20 years, said Bible study plays a vital role in Mercer County schools. It's been said you can't throw a rock around here without hitting a church, he explained. It's a very church-going community, and the local schools study the Bible as literature. David also regularly made the school's Be or Better honor roll and was co-captain of the five-member Princeton High School chess team, which competed against schools all over West Virginia. He was just kind of goofy and nerdy, remembered David Downard, who was also on the team. He was very quiet and always had this funny grin and would stand with his hands tied together behind his back. Another member of the chess team, Tony Veneri, still talks about an incident on the drive back to Princeton after a tournament. One of the other chess club members, Philip Wright, was driving and going a little fast, said Tony's wife, Becky, who has heard the story numerous times. And David who was usually quiet and easygoing, became very anxious and screamed, Oh, Philip, slow down. You're going to kill us. By his senior year, David Turpin had decided he wanted to be an engineer and was an active member in the Princeton High School Science Club. The straight-A student won first place in the annual Mercer County Science Fair and joined the prestigious West Virginia Junior Academy of Science. He was also a huge fan of the hit TV show Star Trek, strongly identifying with Mr. Spock, perhaps the inspiration for his new hairstyle. David and his friends were Star Trek fans, or Trekkies, said Gilbert, and they would make jokes about that. The 1979 Princeton High School yearbook has a humorous picture of the co-captain of the chess team, the spitting image of Leonard Nimoy's character, gazing longingly at a sports sneaker. David Turpin surrenders his king to an Adidas, read the tongue-in-cheek caption. The teenager also loved cars, which would become a lifelong passion. His father, Jim, helped him to customize his old Honda Civic. He and his dad put a big old pair of air horns on it with an air compression tank, recalled Gilbert. Just like his little Honda Civic was an 18-wheeler or a tractor trailer, he would pull up behind you blowing those air horns and scare you because it was coming out of such a little vehicle. He loved to blow that horn. He'd be laughing and scaring people. Every Saturday night, David drove his Honda into downtown Princeton, dressed in slacks and a dress shirt and a bow tie. Back in those days, the big thing was cruising, said Gilbert. Everybody would go out on a Saturday night and just drive back and forth through town. You would see David there cruising and sounding off his air horns. Now retired, Mary Hopkins taught both Turpin brothers algebra at Princeton High School. She remembers David being an excellent student. He had a sense of humor, she said. He would smile and say funny things, and I would see the twinkle in his eye. But he was pretty serious about what he was doing, and he did well. 
Tim Sneed, who took biology and Spanish with David, said David never had a girlfriend and didn't take part in any social activities. He didn't really socialize a lot, said Sneed. He seemed like a geek, but he was very intelligent. David graduated from Princeton High School in the class of 1979 with a grade point average of 95.6585. He had also been awarded a coveted scholarship to study electrical engineering at Virginia Tech. At his graduation ceremony, David wore a mortarboard and robes and was presented, presented with a top 20 student award. The 1979 yearbook explained the accolade. At every high school, there are always groups of students known as the brains. They are the ones that actually do all their homework every night and always have a tremendous stack of books to carry home. Consequently, the top 20 are truly the tops. So it seems like David Turpin to me, and this is just a sidebar of my own opinion, uh, David Turpin could have been a decent dude. He could have been a good dude if he would have just, you know, explored the Trekkie side of himself. He would have just stayed with the geeky side of himself. But I have a feeling that he went down the super ultra fundamental religious route, just like his family did. Um, you know, family over everything, values over everything, and he sort of put his personality to the wayside. And I think that's what sort of started the fire. You know, it was the spark that lit the match. Because he's already, from his family life that we went over in the past episode, he's already got some cards stacked up against him biologically. He's already got cards stacked up against him because of how his family you know, abuses each other. He's grown up in abuse. So those cards are stacked up against him. And if one of those sparks hits one of those cards, it's all going to go up in flames. In his graduation picture, a smiling David Turpin wears a smart fawn colored suit and a flashy striped tie with his Mr. Spock haircut. His numerous group affiliations and career ambitions are listed below his photo. In addition to being co-captain of the chess team, treasurer of the Bible club, and a science club member, he was in the Spanish club and the school's a cappella choir. <sighs> I'm just imagining David Turpin in an a cappella group in, like, glee club. Jesus. His goal for the future was to take up a career in electrical engineering and invent the light bulb. His life motto, he said, was, Never do today what you can put off until tomorrow. Okay, Squidward. It was around the time of his graduation that David was first attracted to 10-year-old Louise Robinette. Let me repeat that sentence for anyone who might not have like gotten the gravity of it. It was around the time of his graduation that David was first attracted to 10-year-old Louise Robinette. There is a big ingredient of the soup. David and Louise's parents had been close friends for maybe for many years. David had actually held Louise when she was a little baby. Both families' lives revolved around the Princeton Church of God. David's brother Randy worked there as a pastoral minister and their mother, Betty Jean, taught Sunday school. Louise Robinette was one of her pupils. After their 1967 wedding, 
Alan and Phyllis Robinette moved into a small house at 102B Ray Street. It was there that Louise grew up as a tailor, in one of Princeton's most respected families. Her grandfather, John Taylor, was already a wealthy man from his Shell gas station and various property deals. Her uncles, Eugene and Glenn Taylor, were also successful in their own right. Eugene owned the Clearview Trailer Park, and Glenn was a self-employed brick mason. Tragedy struck the family in 1974, when Louise's youngest brother James was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident. He was on his way to the nearby Athens High School for a date with his girlfriend Sharon when his bike skidded off the road. James got his leg cut off from the knee down, said Lois Miller, who was in Sharon's class. I wasn't too crazy about Sharon dating him. I thought it was too wild. In 1978, Louise celebrated her 10th birthday, and Alan Robinette shot a video of his daughter opening presents in her bedroom. With her long dark hair in a headband and wearing a white ruffled shirt with a Peter Pan collar, the little girl looked like she didn't have a care in the world. Later that day, there was a party with her birthday cake, and her grandfather, affectionately known in the family as Papaw, was photographed with Louise and her little 18-month-old sister, Elizabeth Jane. However, the reality of the Robinette's household was less than picture-perfect. After her own abusive childhood, Phyllis Robinette showed little interest in being a mother, leaving Louise to bring up her red-haired baby sister. The Robinette home was a battleground with Phyllis and Alan's constant arguments. Some of Elizabeth's earliest memories are of Louise trying to shield her from their parents' raging fights. There was fighting between my parents and yelling and screaming, said Elizabeth. I remember Louise covering my ears and planting my face in her chest so I wouldn't have to hear or watch it. She was very, very protective. Where did that stop? Where did that stop? Louise, I guess, was a protector. What led her to abuse her 13 children in the way that she did? This is much more interesting to me, actually. David Turpin, although he is a Trekkie, you know, he's a geek, he's still an 18-year-old that was first attracted to a 10-year-old. That's not normal. That is an aberration that is not explainable. Louise, however, seems to be normal, seems to be going through a horribly tough time in that abusive household where her parents are constantly fighting, and she's protecting and raising her younger sister. Where did that go wrong? Even when Louise was arrested, she didn't really seem to give a shit. David was crying, whether it, whether it was for himself or for what he actually did, we don't know. But Louise didn't react. She just sort of smirked and spit on the ground. Beginning when Louise was a tiny child, Phyllis would regularly drive her over to her father's house. For years, John Taylor, now in his mid-40s, had allegedly been molesting his daughter. Now he turned his attention to his pretty young granddaughter, and Phyllis allowed it in return for money. Oh my God. He was the family leader, said Elizabeth. He had money, so when my mom needed money, she ran to him. It was always the same. At some point during the visit, Papa would whisper to Louise that they were going to the other room for a 
quote-unquote tight hug. Years later, female family members would reveal what had really happened in their grandfather's house. He molested my mom all her life, said Louise's younger sister, Teresa. We begged my mom not to take us there some days, and she would take us anyway. He was very, very wealthy. So this is the Shell Station grandfather. Their grandfather's alleged abuse was a closely guarded family secret, and the girls were told to never talk about it. That's how we were programmed, Elizabeth explained. We know how to mask very well and not show what we're feeling. Ding, 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 that's a big ingredient to the soup, I feel. Told never to talk about it, it's a secret. Same thing with her kids. We're abusing you, don't talk about it. Like David, Louise also attended Glenwood Junior High School and then Princeton High School. She was kind of quiet and kept to herself, remembers Richard Ford, who was in Louise's class at Princeton High. She didn't have many friends, and she was picked on a little bit. It was kind of strange. She isolated herself from everybody else. I don't remember ever seeing her out. Most of the students would go to the mall on the weekends or the ball games. The sole mention of her in the 1984 yearbook is as vice president of the Bible Club. Her yearbook photograph shows Louise dressed in an all-American crew neck, her long, dark, curly hair cut into bangs. Elizabeth remembers her older sister being very unpopular and constantly ridiculed by her schoolmates. She didn't have any friends, said Elizabeth. She was made fun of a lot. She never had any control in her life growing up. Alan Robinette, who worked as a draftsman doing blueprints for the Joy Manufacturing Company, would often, dis- would often drive his daughter home from school. He appeared to have had no idea of Louise's struggle to fit in. On Friday, March 25, 1983, he photographed her holding school books, writing underneath, writing underneath Louise, Daddy's Girl, Coming from School. In 1982, Mary Louise Taylor caught her 58-year-old husband raping their 14-year-old granddaughter, Louise, on the living room couch. (sighs) Christ almighty. Furious, she picked up a frying pan and chased him out of the house. Within days, she had filed for divorce, and Taylor moved into a new house at Bailey Hollow Road, right behind his shell station. To avoid scandal, the horrific incident was never reported to the police. It was a very small town, and everybody knew him, explained Elizabeth. We had to keep our family name and be on the uppity-up for the town of Princeton. So we can't go to the authorities. Elizabeth's younger sister, Teresa, who was a year old at the time, would only learn the real reason for her grandparents' divorce after she had become another victim of Taylor's sexual abuse. There was never any justice, said Teresa. The family told us girls to keep quiet. We didn't want to ruin the family name, and he had all the money. Ugh. Jesus Christ. Go to the police. At some point, it does not matter how much money they have. Well, I'm, oh, God. You go to the police. You go to the police. 
Mary Louise Taylor did everything right. She chased him with a prying pan. She divorced him, except for going to the police. She didn't go to the police. Come on. A year later, Louise started secretly dating 22-year-old David. Phyllis was aware of the relationship, but was too scared to tell her husband, as the evangelical preacher would never have approved of his young daughter dating an older man. My mom was like, oh, it's David Turpin, the Turpin boy, said Elizabeth. He's a good boy. Louise confided to Elizabeth that she was going to marry David as soon as possible and have 12 children. He was going to be a rich engineer, she told her sister, earning $100,000 a year and giving her everything she had ever dreamed of. Child trauma specialist and therapist Allison Davis Maxson, nationally recognized as an expert in children's mental health, said that child incest victims may, as adults, feel powerless or worthless and can attract, quote-unquote, partners who abuse them or their children. When a young girl has grown up being constantly victimized and perpetrated on, explained Maxson, it's not uncommon, unfortunately, for her to grow up and marry a perpetrator and or a pedophile, because that's the relationship dance she knows. It's really about attachment. When a child has learned that connection means pain, trauma, and abuse, he or she learns the dance of victimhood. The child typically internalizes a belief system that they are unworthy, dirty, less than, bad, and or deserve to be punished. So it's not uncommon for children who have suffered intense abuse and trauma to grow up and find a partner that will treat them according to what their belief system dictates. I'm worthless, bad, and deserve to be punished. I want to talk about that right now, because that is uh, some of the most important things that you can read when analyzing abusive relationships. If any of that sounds familiar to anyone that is listening, God forbid, then you, you got to do some examining of your relationship. If your partner reminds you of your abuser, if it's feeling familiar, get up out of there. Because half the time, the victim might not even realize that they're doing that dance of victimhood. They might not even realize that they're internalizing that belief system and furthering the cycle. So it's not at all the victim's fault, but it's hard to dig out of. It's very hard to dig out of that. So I can absolutely see where Louise, being abused her entire life, I, the question like, where did it go wrong? Oh, her family. That's where it went wrong. Louise was let down by her family. Again, the cards were stacked up against David and Louise, and they were failed. I believe that David is much more internally screwed up than Louise is. I feel like he has a lot more like natural aberrations, but I feel like Louise met David and just ran with it. She just took it and ran. Now in his first year at Virginia Tech, David was majoring in electrical engineering and was an excellent student. He was also a member of Ada Kappa Nu, an elite international electrical and computer engineering honor society. Past members include Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Larry Page and Eric Schmidt of Google, 
and Yahoo co-founder Sabir Batia. Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> Most weekends, David would drive home from the Virginia Tech campus in Blackburg, Virginia to visit his girlfriend Louise. But they always had to sneak around so her father wouldn't find out that they had become more than friends. Phyllis encouraged the relationship, admiring the Turpin family's devout Christian values. But her husband, now working in the Mercer County Accessor's Office, would never have approved. His daughter was only 15 and below the age of consent. Any sexual contact between the couple would have been statutory rape. In 1984, David Turpin graduated Virginia Tech with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. In both his junior and senior years, he was awarded the prestigious Marshall Hahn Engineering Scholarship. In the yearbook, he's pictured with a tuxedo, a bow tie, and a big old grin. He projects the look of a confident young man who is really going places. As David began sending off his resume to blue-chip companies, Louise started 10th grade at Princeton High School. She was a tiny little girl and looked like she was about 10, recalled her shorthand teacher, Pamela Winfrey, who had been in Louise's father's graduating class. I guess she was 15 or 16, but she was really a quiet girl. Ugh, it gives me a shiver up my spine, knowing that you know that David was attracted to her because of how young she looked, because of how little she was. He's not a good man. He's a bowl-cut bastard. Ugh. Younger sister Teresa said Louise was highly manipulative. And Teresa would later realize that acting shy and dutiful was part of Louise's act. Obedient in front of them, explained Teresa, but behind their back, no. Louise was going to get her way no matter what. Elizabeth said her sister was headstrong and always got what she wanted. It was her way or no way, Elizabeth explained, and if she had to sneak around to do it, she would. David soon found an engineering job with the U.S. defense contractor General Dynamics in Fort Worth, Texas. He asked Louise to elope with him, promising to buy her whatever she wanted. Louise immediately agreed, and they, and they began secretly planning their new life together. Elizabeth now believes that Louise was also desperate to escape her grandfather's sexual abuse, which had worsened since his divorce. Phyllis was bringing her three daughters over to his new home regularly, allowing her father to abuse them and then taking his money. But whenever Papa asked Elizabeth for a tight hug, Louise would insist on taking her place. She would always push me out of the way and say, I'll go, remembered Elizabeth. She was very protective. Holy moly. Oh, so Louise's protective side is now clashing with the side of like her being abused, of the victim, of the victim mentality, of the victim. It's easy to, you know, to play that part when you know that it'll just get the abuse over with. It's both of her sides of her personality, the the protector and 
the person that can put herself through shit. Both of those parts intersecting in order to save Elizabeth. So where, why did she do that to her kids? Why did she hurt her kids? When their grandmother discovered Phyllis was still allowing her daughters to be molested, she demanded Phyllis stop taking them over. And my mom would just say, that's my father, said Elizabeth. Well, that was chapter three. That was a god-awful chapter. So we've learned a lot about uh, how David was in school a little bit, but it's not really important. The important part about David is his early childhood and the fact that he is attracted to prepubescent girls um, or girls that look uh, around that um, age. God, Louise, however, is much more fascinating to me. She went through hell. You, you cannot deny that Louise Turpin went through hell. But w- I'm wondering at what point in her life did did she turn? Did the abuser become the abused? I'm wondering where it went wrong. But boy, that was a lot of insight into how Louise was treated. And I have to say, I'm oddly feeling sympathy for her. You know, I I think about all the crimes that happened with those children, and putting that aside for a moment, Louise went through absolute hell as a child. All of them did. It's, it's It's a question where you look at that, you know when you look at something and you go, oh, well, no wonder. No wonder. No wonder it went wrong. Interesting. Very interesting. Very sad. Chapter 4, The Runaways That Christmas, Louise gave little sign of her imminent departure. On Christmas Day, she was photographed with her grandmother sitting on a checkered couch in the living room beside a fully trimmed Christmas tree with the presents underneath. But by mid-January, David Turpin had devised an elaborate scheme to whisk the 16-year-old off to Fort Worth, Texas so they could marry. Whisk the 16-year-old. Whisk the 16-year-old. Tongue twister. It was a big secret. Louise only told Elizabeth and a friend in her shorthand class at Princeton High School, swearing them to secrecy. The night before leaving, Louise called Elizabeth into her bedroom, saying she had something important to tell her. She came in to find her older sister packing a duffel bag. Then... Louise asked how Elizabeth would feel if she married a rich man and had a baby. You could come over and hold it, said Louise, adding that they would all live together in a big house with a nice car and lots of money to spend. Wouldn't that be fun, she said, and I could buy you what you want. Then she made Elizabeth promise not to tell anybody. Early the next morning, Louise said goodbye to her parents and went off on the school bus as usual. David's plan called for him to masquerade as her father so he could sign her out of school. That's a problem. When your boyfriend is old enough to fake play your father to sign you out of school. That's a problem. That's a big problem. That's a a man manipulating and abusing someone. It's just not okay. <laughs> it's, it's 
it's clearly an adult taking advantage of a naive child, using their experience, expertise, and age, you know, to groom this young girl. That morning in shorthand class, Louise seemed nervous, waiting for her boyfriend to arrive. She repeatedly asked her teacher, Pamela Winfrey, for permission to go to the restroom so she could check if he was there yet. She said, Can I be excused? recalled Winfrey. And she left and then came back to class. Then a few minutes later, she said, Can I be excused again? And then she left. She asked two or three times to be excused. And then she left. And I never saw her again. When Louise didn't return to class, Winfrey asked the other pupils if she was sick. Then one of the girls told me, well, she's planning on running off and getting married to David Turpin. I was totally amazed. But by then, it was too late to stop her. David Turpin had disguised himself to look older, donning a fake mustache and a cowboy hat. He had then parked outside the front entrance of Princeton High School and walked into the office announcing he was Alan Robinette, and Louise had to leave with him immediately. Nobody questioned him further, and he officially signed her out of school. A few minutes later, David Turpin and his underage girlfriend were heading west out of Princeton for their 1,100-mile journey to Fort Worth. When Elizabeth arrived home alone that afternoon, her mother presumed Louise had missed the school bus, so she drove to Princeton High School to collect her and was informed that her husband had checked her out hours earlier. So Phyllis called Alan Robinette to find out what was happening, and he, quote, flipped out, saying he hadn't signed out their daughter. When he called the school, who told him that a tall man with a mustache and a hat had left with Louise hours earlier, he was frantic. Elizabeth said, Daddy was frantic. Mommy was frantic, so they went to the police station and reported Louise missing. Over the next several days, there was no word from Louise. Her parents blamed each other for running away. Alan was furious with his wife for encouraging the relationship with David, saying it was all her fault. I remember the chaos in the house when she eloped with David, said Teresa. Our whole family being in the house, and my parents fighting and crying. A few days later a police officer picked up the runaway couple in Fort Worth and made Louise call her parents to say she was all right. Ironically, it was her mother who wanted to press charges against David for kidnapping. When David's parents heard the threat of legal action, they were livid since their son would face prison for transporting a minor across state lines. They begged the Robinettes not to press charges. After his initial fury when Louise had gone missing, Alan now had, quote, mixed emotions. As an evangelical preacher, he decided it was better to let them quietly marry, as extramarital sex went against his strict Church of God beliefs. His attitude was that Louise had made her choice and should now go off with David and live her life. He got on the phone and told Louise, You're an adult now and can take care of yourself. If this is what you want, you go for it. So he only let Louise just quietly marry him because uh, I don't want them having sex before marriage. God wouldn't like that. While she's under, she's underage. She's underage, Dad. She cannot marry this. Oh. 
She cannot marry this man! It was only after Alan Robinette agreed to give written permission for his 16-year-old daughter to marry David that the couple drove back to Princeton. On February 11th, 1985, Louise and David Turpin were married at a small, quiet church ceremony in Parisburg, Virginia, 30 miles east of Princeton. Only close family members attended. The bride wore a mid-calf-length conservative white dress with a high mock turtle neckline and slightly puffed long sleeves. She had a simple white flower corsage. The groom wore a loose-fitting brown three-piece suit with a striped tie and his usual grin. Immediately after the wedding, the newlyweds returned to Fort Worth to begin their new life together. There was no wedding report in the Bluefield Daily Telegraph, and few of Louise's classmates even noticed she had suddenly dropped out of school mid-semester and never graduated. She was supposed to be in my graduating class, said Richard Ford. She just disappeared. <laughs> I don't know why I went British. I'm so sorry. It just was so regal and beautiful. I decided to go all posh. At the beginning of their marriage, David was making good money in his new job at General Dynamics, keeping his promise that they would live well. Although she still sent Elizabeth letters regularly, Louise turned her back on Princeton. She wanted nothing to do with her miserable childhood, blaming her family for her grandfather's sexual abuse. And honestly, yeah, yeah, you blame the grandfather for doing the abusing, but also her own mother for constantly bringing them over to be abused and for her to collect the money. Yeah, she has a right to be mad. When she first left home, she was mad and resented mommy a lot, explained Teresa. She resented the whole family because they kept the secret. With Louise gone, her parents' arguments became even worse. Eight-year-old Elizabeth and her three-year-old sister Teresa would hug each other to try to escape the continual fights. Then, Phyllis started an affair with a local man. Late one night, after her father had gone to bed, Elizabeth heard her mother talking to somebody on the phone. She instinctively knew that something was wrong. She woke up her father, telling him that her mother was on the phone with a stranger. Alan picked up the phone and listened to the conversation for a few minutes before slamming it down. Then he confronted Phyllis, demanding to know who she was talking to. When she claimed it was only her father, he knew she was lying and berated her for being unfaithful. Things got so heated that Phyllis finally called her father for help. John Taylor rushed straight over and ordered his son-in-law out of his own house, threatening to call the police if he didn't leave. Alan did leave. He filed for divorce the next day. With Alan out of the picture, John Taylor started spending more and more time at the B. Ray Street house. By then, he was also molesting Teresa, his youngest granddaughter. Without a husband to support her, Phyllis became more and more reliant on her father's money to feed and clothe her children, so she allowed Papa to molest them whenever he wanted to. She sold us to a wealthy pedophile, 
said Teresa. Oh my God. That is a hard sentence for a daughter to self-awaredly say about herself and her own mother and her own grandfather, Jesus Christ. She sold us to a wealthy pedophile, said Teresa. He would slip money into my hand as he molested me. I can still feel his breath on my neck as he whispered, Be quiet. He would come to the car after every time and hand my mom money. And he thought that made it okay. Without their big sister to protect them, Elizabeth and Teresa would now have to endure their grandfather's despicable behavior alone. Soon afterward, Phyllis became pregnant by her new boyfriend, Billy Lambert, and they got engaged. Alan, who had recently been appointed chief deputy assessor of Mercer County, assessor of Mercer County, approved, believing the relationship gave Phyllis some stability. Lambert also got along well with Elizabeth and Teresa. Then, days before the wedding, Billy was driving home from work when he suffered a brain hemorrhage. His car went over a cliff and he died instantly. What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? When Phyllis gave birth to his son months later, she named him Billy Jr. And it's, it's just two paragraphs and that's it. There's two paragraphs about Billy Lambert and then we're just done. I want to know more about that. Meanwhile, in Fort Worth, <laughs> David and Louise Turpin were thriving. David was working as a computer engineer on the F-16 Fighting Falcon, one of the most popular military supersonic jet fighters. It was a high-paid job, and the couple often ate out at pricier restaurants around town. They spent weekends at the historic Fort Worth stockyards, going to the rodeo and Wild West shows. In 1987, David and Louise moved to Brea, California for his job. Just 33 miles southeast of Los Angeles, in Orange County, the scenic city is famous for its public arts program, which attracts tourists from all over the world. The Turpins loved the warm Mediterranean climate, with the average temperature in the 80s. The Turpins found a modest two-bedroom apartment at 800 South Brea Boulevard, Though Louise still resented her family for her traumatic childhood, she embraced any opportunity to boast about her affluent new life. She wrote letters back to Princeton, vividly describing their beautiful home, fleet of cars, and frequent trips to Disneyland. She promised to fly her mother and sisters out soon to visit, all expenses paid. Back in Princeton, her family situation was less fortunate. After her fiancé's tragic death, Phyllis Robinette turned to prostitution to survive. She would leave Elizabeth and Teresa home alone all night to care for their baby brother while she turned tricks downtown on seedy Mercer Street. Sometimes she took the kids with her, leaving them in the car while she entertained clients. Janie Farmer taught Elizabeth and Teresa in Mercer Elementary School, she could see the neglect the children suffered, eventually becoming their surrogate mother. I found them to be a sad, needy family, recalled Farmer. I hate to talk bad about their mother because I think she did what she could, but she couldn't do a lot. Oh, I knew quite a few 
parents like that when I was a teacher. When I was a teacher, I, I fully get, I, I could see that there were some kids that were kind of going through it, whether it was like their home life or their friend life or just mental health in general. You can always tell when a kid needs support. So Janie Farmer is a pretty good teacher here. Each morning, the two Robinette sisters came to school looking unkempt with bad personal hygiene. They were made fun of by their classmates. They were not clean and kind of raggedy looking, Farmer said. When the other kids would go out to play, they basically stayed by themselves. They seemed to be sad children. Farmer, who was good friends with her father, as they were both staunch Democrats, was surprised by how Phyllis always tried to keep her daughters away from Alan. The girls got to visit their father, recalled Farmer, but he didn't seem to be allowed in their lives as much as he wanted. Although Phyllis never attended any parent-teacher meetings, she suddenly started visiting Mercer Elementary School for another reason. She developed a crush on David Lee, the African-American school custodian. She was smitten. Infatuated, said Farmer. She would come to the school just to see the custodian. Most evenings, Phyllis would drive her little girls back to the school, leaving them in her car while she went in to see her her new... her. I had a stroke, and I don't feel like editing that out. So I'm just going to start over again from the beginning of that sentence. Although Phyllis... What? Where am I? What the fuck? Most evenings, Phyllis would drive her little girls back to the school, leaving them in the car while she went in to see her new boyfriend. They dated, said Elizabeth, but it wasn't normal dating. He cleaned the school at night, and we would keep him company while he cleaned. Before long, the two were virtually living together, leading to even more instability for Phyllis's family. Janie Farmer became so concerned for the girls that she confronted Phyllis. She'd say, well, I'm doing the best I can, said Farmer, and for all purposes, she probably was. But the girls never spoke to me about abuse or anything like that. Although Farmer eventually lost touch with Elizabeth and Teresa when they both graduated to middle school, David Lee would stay in the Robinettes' lives a little longer. Over the next four years, Phyllis would give birth to two of his children— McCreary and Eileen Lee, before the couple finally drifted apart. And that is the end of chapter four. And we will be moving on after this chapter on the next episode onto part two of this book. Part two is titled The Family. So I have a feeling that we're going to get into David and Louise's family life. I have a feeling that we're going to see the birth of her first child and we're going to see exactly how it goes wrong. We're going to see exactly how she starts to abuse her children. Or maybe we won't. Maybe she'll be a good mother and it'll go downhill later. I have no idea. Um, But I'm excited to find out. Shouldn't say I'm excited to find out, but I'm interested. I'm intrigued. This is a very interesting case psychologically. Um... It's a very interesting case in terms of abusive relationships. It's just an interesting case to see how David and Louise are going to ping pong off of each other. And I have to say, 
there has to be something wrong with Louise. There has to be other factors at play because Elizabeth and Teresa were also abused in the same way that Louise was. Not the exact same way, but there are echoes of the same abuse. They all went through the same abuse or similar abuse. And Elizabeth and Teresa did not grow up to abuse their children. That is something that we have to remember. That's an important factor to consider. Elizabeth and Teresa didn't grow up to be the abusers that Louise grew up to be. So what else went wrong? Is it something that Louise was born with? Some sort of a chemical imbalance that she was born with? Did something else happen? Was there another event or events that caused her to just snap and turn into a different person? Or was it a gradual release? Same thing with David. We know that he was born with the aberration to like underage girls. It's not normal for a man his age to like underage girls like that, to want to be sexually active with underage girls like that. That's not normal. They cannot consent. It's it's just a very interesting case. To, if, if I could open up David and Louise's brains, if I could take a look at their brain, if their brain was like labeled that would be, I wish that people's brains were labeled. Like you could take someone's brain out and go like, oh, anger issues, anxiety problems, this event that happened, this was very integral to why they act the way that they are now. If we could get like a brain chart, like why are they the way that they are? That's what I would love. A lot of people probably wonder like why true crime? You know, there's been a big true crime boom in the last few years, but like why bother? Why obsess yourself with these gory details? Why think about death constantly? It's like you're obsessed. And to a degree, there is a morbid fascination with true crime. There is a morbid fascination with like, how can people do this? It's like, how can people do this? I couldn't dream of doing that to other people. I couldn't dream of murdering somebody in cold blood. I couldn't believe, I, I couldn't think of abusing children like that. So whenever I go over true crime cases, and I'm sure that anybody who loves true crime as well probably feels the same, it's a fascination with what went wrong. It's a fascination with the the mental outlier that you have in these criminals. When you find a weird case, like a Jody Arias case, Casey Anthony, Richard Ramirez, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, or even like, you know, I, I will literally listen to 911 calls for fun. And there's a part of my brain that steps back and examines what I'm doing and goes like, why are you doing this? This is very depressing. This is very dark. What's going on? Why are you so fascinated? And I think another part of it it makes me appreciate being alive. It makes me appreciate being alive. It makes me appreciate the things that I have, being able to take a breath, being able to speak to you guys, to have this platform, to sit in this chair, to touch this desk, to eat this apple. So I think there's absolutely a morbid fascination with true crime and like, ooh, gory details, look at all the blood and guts, and whoa, isn't that crazy that people can do that? Whoa, it's crazy how wrong people can go. And then the other half of it is like, 
ooh, I'm glad that that wasn't me. And it's a really screwed up thing to think, but it makes you appreciative of the life that you have. It's it's why like whenever I go over a true crime case, like if I if I were to ever do it, um, uh, when and if I do, whichever case that I decide to choose, I always want to make sure that I, you know, the the real victims paint them in a respectful light. Like Elizabeth and Teresa were victims here, and Louise as well was a victim, but in turn. She turned it, she flipped it on its head and became the abuser. And that's not okay. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that, Louise. You didn't have to do that, Louise. So it's going to be interesting to see what else goes wrong, what else contributes to the soup. But for now, it's like part of me examines Louise's life and goes, oh, no wonder. And then another part of me is like, well, what the, why did she, what, that's, what leads her to chain up her children in the, in the house for months at a time and starve them and, and shit? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Your sisters aren't doing that. Why are you? David, what are you teaching her? That's really what I want to, like, David, what are you teaching her? Louise, what are you learning? Why, should you be together? No, no, no. Oh, so that was a good couple chapters. If you're liking the book so far, I appreciate you stopping by. I appreciate you listening. If you enjoy my commentary on the book, thank you. Bless you. I appreciate you being here. I want you guys to give me some feedback on the podcast. If you've made it this far, please do me a favor and let me know how we're doing. You can leave a voice message through the link below in the little description. Leave a voice message. Maybe give me some words of encouragement. You got a question that you want to ask? I can play it on the podcast and answer it for you. Or if you just want to shout, you're more than welcome to. If you want to leave some feedback, feel free. I I really, I, I need it. I need the feedback. I need to know what you guys think and how I can improve and what you guys want to see more of. I also do Q&As on my Instagram. My Instagram is at C.H. Steakhouse, the Casey Hamilton Steakhouse, because you go to Instagram, you know, you don't go to Instagram for just a light snack. You go to an Instagram for a full-blown meal, baby. And that's what my Instagram is. So you go to C.H. Steakhouse, you're going to be able to get the tasty, juicy, bite-sized bits that you love. Uh, So on my Instagram stories, I'll do Q&As there asking people what they want to see more of on the podcast. So if you're listening, if you've been listening, if you've been listening for a while, if you're enjoying the episodes, or if you want to just add some critiques or criticisms, I take everything, anything, as long as it's not rude for the sake of being rude. Um, Constructive criticism can still be, it doesn't have to be soft. Constructive criticism can still be fairly like hard to hear as long as it's still constructive at the end of the day. A lot of people think constructive criticisms mean it, that it has to be nice. No, you can still say like, hey, man, that sucked. But here are the things that are good. Here are the things that you can improve. But mm, not too good. Don't mince words. Well, I'm glad that you guys all made it here. Again, Instagram is at CH Steakhouse. My TikTok, of course, is at Mr. Hamilton. My Snapchat is at CH Steakhouse as well. I love you all. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the book, we'll see you back next Monday for the Monday Night Book Club. 
From all of us here at a slice of ham, we'd like to say, good job. Eat your vegetables, do your homework, and as always, yay. Thank you.